I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Welcome back to Behind the Bastards, the show about the worst people in all of history. Um... And boy, howdy, is it an appropriate week for an episode of this show about the worst people in all of history. Uh, because today uh, is the day that, um, I, I don't know, it's one of the days that a series of horrific wildfires have gripped my entire state, forcing 10% of its population to flee. And there are armed militiamen setting up uh, checkpoints uh, based on racism and paranoia uh in small rural areas and that may seem like it's not connected to other things in history but it's actually connected very directly to the subject of our podcast today which is a little something called the school of the americas uh and the way that these two tie together is very fascinating and the ooh you just heard uh (laughs) is my guest today joelle monique uh who is a culture critic and a podcast you know the thing that this is that you're listening to a podcast producer you produce the things that that are occurring right now in everyone's ears joelle how are you doing I'm uh, hanging in there. We're in the apocalypse. Uh, we the are. The sun is orange and the sky is gray. I am just trying to keep it. It feels weird to keep going. Like, I feel like I have to change something actively in my life to reflect the chaos outside. But I haven't figured what that is yet. I don't know. That's how I'm doing. I don't know how I'm doing. It's chaos. Yeah, we need a German word for how surreal it is <laughs> to, like, go out to a grocery store or meet a friend for lunch as, like, plumes of smoke the size of skyscrapers drift by and mm. and like the smell of death fills the air and 
fascist militias begin like bivouacking, you know, 20 minutes away from your door. It's surreal. Um, But you know what's not surreal is how professional the introduction to this episode was. You're doing great. (laughs) I got right in there. Like I directly connected it to a thing that was going on. Uh, I just I'm real proud of that. Proud of you, Robert. (laughs) Thank you. School of the Americas is, uh, spoilers, uh, a horrific uh, uh, CIA slash Defense Department um, operation that that led to the overthrow of like a dozen different democratically elected governments in Latin America over the course of several decades. Um, That's crazy. Oh, yeah. No, it's a bad thing. School of the Americas is a bad thing. It's a bad, it was a real terrible thing that existed for a while. Good things um, only happen on this podcast mm-hmm. uh, on our holiday and- episode. It does tie in rather directly to uh, what's going on right now in the United States, because a lot of the things we're seeing, uh, the government clamping down on uh, unrest, you know, illegal arrests, suppression of political opposition, the disappearance of uh, political activists, the 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 increasing um, interorganization between state law enforcement uh, and different sort of militias and paramilitary groups. All of that stuff that's happening right now uh, that people are getting really terrified about in the United States is exactly the stuff that we've been doing in Latin America in a number of different countries for decades, going back to when, like, our parents were kids. Um, And today is the episode about how a lot of that was organized. So a lot of the things that are happening in America today have their genesis in things the United States was doing to Latin America, and we're going to learn about that. So that's going to be good. Yeah. Listen, I really am because the more people from who've been in countries where they're like, oh, yeah, no, fascists took over here. They're like, pay attention to this small detail here. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then they're like, and let me show you how that expanded into something that was horrible. Mm -hmm. Try to stop this before it becomes a fire. Uh, sorry, that's maybe bad phrasing right now. Um, no, it actually, I think it compares really well to a fire because it's one of those things where you don't have to have this kind of problem with fires. Like, you mm. can, there there are ways that people dealt with, you know, the, the propensity and the fact that this both, like every, the West Coast needs to burn a lot uh, every yes. year. Um it doesn't need to lead to hundreds of thousands of people losing their homes because it's it can be managed in predictable ways. But you mean we instead, could do controlled yeah. fires and like put them out and make we sure can we clear the get brush, rid of like a lot of the nurseries people? that we have that exist to just like raise a bunch of trees for commodification, which uh you know are are much worse in terms of like areas like like they they contribute to making an area vulnerable to fires. We can bury our power lines. We can shut off power access to area like there's a whole lot of things that can be done we're americans and we want to solve a problem after it's become a problem never before (laughs) and the calamity that oregon and california is experiencing right now a lot of people saw it coming just like a lot of people have seen the rise of fascism coming for decades in the united Mm -hmm. states and instead of doing anything about it we had that one tv show where um (laughs) flava flav he does this like he had this (laughs) He was looking for a wife, if I'm remembering correctly. I um, did not expect Flav to be the next reference. Oh yeah, I blame God. the rise of fascism in the United States entirely on Flava Flav, actually. Um, I would read that essay, Robert. Flava Flav, well-known the backer of the CIA. Uh, so 
Let's. I think we should start if we're gonna yeah. if we're gonna explain the School of the Americas and how the United States did what is now happening in the United States to uh, a, a huge chunk of the world and Americans didn't pay attention. If we want to really tell that story, we have to go back in time, uh, almost a, well, uh, sorry, almost two centuries uh, to 1823. You know, at that point, 1823, you know, the U.S. was only established in like or, you know, the whole Revolutionary War kicked off in 1776. So the U.S. was like younger than a lot of presidential candidates now um, in, in 1823. But it had started to get like enough power and geographic reach that it was beginning to like look south at what was going on in Central and South America. Um, and, you know, there were at that point all these kind of powers, these the, these ra- these burgeoning nations in, in what we call Latin America today were starting to, in a really effective way, throw off kind of the yoke of colonial oppression. They were there were a bunch of revolutions. They were kicking out their European masters and kind of President Monroe, who was the guy in charge of the U.S. at that point, looked at all this going on um, and he started what, what came to be known decades later as the Monroe Doctrine, where he was basically like, hey, Europe, um, if you know, European powers aren't allowed to take over any new chunks of Latin America. Like we, the United States, are not going to stand for that. Um, this is the area that we have influence in, and you're not allowed to like keep coming in. What um, a ballsy move! What it was just- uh, for a country that had like just gotten the shit kicked out of it in the War of 1812 and like barely held on. It was it was a, it was quite a statement to make. But it was hard for the European powers to, like, get troops and shit down to South America. Sure. So, you know, the U.S. had a big advantage there. It was basically, like, the Monroe, what came to, and, and the Mon, Monroe started making, the, like, made this statement in, like, 1823, but the Monroe Doctrine didn't get, it, start to be called the Monroe Doctrine until, like, 1850. But it was basically the U.S. saying to Europe, stay the fuck out of our backyard. And this was initially kind of like an aspirational thing because we didn't really have the ability to project any power down there. But over the decades, as the United States grew into more of a functional nation and gained more sort of military and naval power, it became something that like we actually had the ability to back up somewhat. So, yeah, uh, now there were a few different big reasons why the United States felt it was so important, you know, even as early as the 1820s to start telling Europe to stay the hell out of Latin America. One of the reasons was that Europeans of the mid 1800s were like, they were just the messiest bitches in the world. Um, <laughs> like they were constantly at war with each other. Huge, these huge, terrifying, what seemed like, you know, like you look at the Napoleonic Wars and stuff, you look at that through a lens of like where shit was in the 18th. It looked like the end of the world to a lot of people and these revolutions that were just horribly bloody. Um, and so the US- monarchs in the street, there's there's no yeah. like, rule of law. Plus, you have there's like a widespread starvation at that time, right? Because we're having yeah. like horrible droughts and things, and so the lower classes all suffer. Yeah, that's, it feels very similar. Yes. Yeah. And Napoleon is raising, you know, you've got sorry, not, but like European warlords are raising like armies that are in the hundreds of thousands that look that are like a significant chunk of the entire U.S. It just seemed like a nightmare to a lot of Americans, um, and Europe was just seen as such like. What they like the the result of European squabbling and fighting was seen as so apocalyptic that the U.S. There were a lot of people in the U.S. who like thought about the idea of like, what if they start coming back to South America mm-hmm. and trying to make new colonies? Like, it'll inevitably lead to horrible, horrible wars right at our doorstep that'll pull us in. So there was, there was, and that's a that was a reasonable thing at the time to be scared at. Like the stuff the the, the British Empire was like getting up to all sorts of horrible, bloody shit in India and Afghanistan, um, in part as a result of their conflicts with Russia at this time. Um, so like the idea that like that that 
South America might become another European battleground. Like that was a real thing to be afraid of. The U.S. What like the President Monroe wasn't being unreasonable when he was like, uh, "This is we don't want to let this happen." So there was a reasonable reason for the Monroe Doctrine. There were also like racist reasons uh, for mm. it, which one of which is that like the U.S. didn't want any competition when it came to politically dominating Latin America. Um, sure. Yeah, so lots of lots a lot of former slaves down there just chilling, ready yeah. to be recolonized. Yeah, well, it's not them. They have kings and shit. So stay over there. Yeah, and there were a lot of folks like people who went on to be like part of the Confederacy who, you know, once upon a time were looking at Latin America and like, well, eventually we're going to have to like that's a lot of that's going to wind up being ours, too. I mean, that um, makes sense if we think about Manifest Destiny just yes. being like, we're just going to conquer all of the I'm sorry to use this word, but heathens. Uh, I yeah, the, it, it always kind of surprised me that we didn't continue to go further down south. Yeah. Aggressive takeover. <laughs> A lot of folks wanted to, um, like a lot of Americans wanted to. Um, and there were even cases of like, like Confederate survivors sort of like packing up and moving down into Latin America to establish plantations and try to keep, you know, their shit going for a while. Just like similar things actually kind of happen with the Nazis. But so time goes by, you know, the Monroe Doctrine gets its name in 1850. It becomes like more and more kind of solid U.S. policy every year. You know, the decades go by. The United States becomes more and more of a world power. It has a big civil war. It has a couple of wars with Mexico. Um, and by and by, you know, time passes. The 1900s come and the United States finds itself with a dude named Teddy Roosevelt in the Oval Office. So Teddy... I heard Old of him. TR. Yeah, we all we've all heard of Teddy. And he was he's like he's one of these guys that if you if you don't think too much about aspects of what he believed, he's a fun dude to read about. Like, oh man, he, people love the burly backwoods. Yeah. He hunted his own bear and then we he's, made he's like a Ron Swanson type. Yeah. Yeah. People people love him if you don't think too much about what he actually believed. Um, I would see that drunk history of just a yeah. Ron Swanson version. Teddy Roosevelt, that's amazing. Well, and it is it is the truth. Most of our, if you're a white person and you didn't talk about the things that he believed about race, you probably could get along with Teddy Roosevelt because he was a fun guy outside of the horrific genocidal racism. I feel like, <laughs> like he's every history's teacher's yeah. favorite president. They're like, this yeah. is what's going to get boys to read. Get he did all sorts of cool <laughs> shit. Yeah. Um, but he was also like as, as hardcore an imperialist as you can... Like, it doesn't get more imperialist than fucking Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> um, he'd gone out of his way to fight in a hysterically unjust war of colonial domination down in Cuba. Um, and he's one of the reasons that we all have own Guantanamo Bay today, which is, you know, have you ever, do you enjoy partly owning Guantanamo Bay, Joel? I do not. It weirds me the hell out. We've committed human atrocities there. Uh, it seems like a place America, the land of the free, should maybe not have. I disagree. I love the fact <laughs> that we just own part of Cuba and use it just to torture people and we don't talk about it all that often. I think it's a great thing to just forget about and just keep doing forever. Um, I no. love that Obama campaigned on getting rid of that and then just stopped talking about it because... What a fucking cool country. So by the turn of the 20th century, Teddy's Teddy's the president and the U.S. is like a full continental power. Right. Like we've 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 achieved more or less our final form. Like you can mm. see like the United States is the United States and it's a real you don't want to you wouldn't want to fuck with her. 
so Roosevelt like has the ability to project power now, and he was a big believer in the Monroe Doctrine. And more to that, he wanted to kind of expand what the, the idea behind the Monroe Doctrine, because he thought the United States had a right and a duty to act as the policeman of the Americas. Um, and I know in the early 2000s, like we all started talking about America as like world police um, as like a bad thing. But Roosevelt would have used those terms and he thought it was a good thing. He thought it's, it's what we, we ought to be doing. But not in the world, just in our hemisphere. Oh, very reasonable man. Very yeah. reasonable. So, you know, one of the things that uh, Roosevelt gets concerned with is that Venezuela uh, is in a huge amount of debt to a bunch of creditors in Europe. Uh, and he's worried that this is going to lead to her being invaded by European powers, which would destabilize Latin America and, again, lead to this thing. This not entirely unreasonable thing, because 1904, if you're at all aware of what's happening, most people know some horrible European war is coming. So, again... You've got this mix of he's an imperialist, but also he's just kind of looking at what Europe's doing and like, we got to keep this shit away from as far away from us as possible, which, again, not an entirely unreasonable thing to want to do. So far, I'm like, that's okay. All right. I I see it. So he's 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 got both these racist reasons for what he's doing and these pretty reasonable reasons. It's a mix of things. Uh, And in 1904, he issues what's known as the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. Quote, the United States would intervene as a last resort to ensure that other nations in the Western Hemisphere fulfilled their obligations to international creditors and did not violate the rights of the United States or invite foreign aggression to the detriment to the entire body of American nations. That's how our own State Department summarizes it. So we're not just the police. also the bank (laughs) yeah kind of he's like basically i don't want europe coming in here to like insure its own debts so we will police and invade latin american nations on behalf of european powers to keep them out of here that is some Um, white nonsense yeah that is some white nonsense (laughs) oh my god and again, that quote I read is from our own State Department's Office of the Historian. Uh, and it goes on to note, quote, As the corollary worked out in practice, the United States increasingly used military force to restore internal stability to nations in the region. Roosevelt declared that the United States might exercise international police power in flagrant cases of such wrongdoing or impotence. So. That's very broad. Stability. Yeah. Remember what our state department calls stability the people who live in those countries might not have called stability just a thing to keep in mind so tr we we again we tend to think about like the stuff he did as a person his actual presidential policy is pretty overlooked in part because he's like he's in power right before all the cool shit in the 21st the 20th century starts to happen so like you know nobody really gives a shit most average person on the street about like fucking 1900 to 1914 you know world war one starts and people start to get interested but his corollary to the monroe doctrine would go on to become one of the most tragically influential decisions made by a u.s president more than a century later the united states is still operating under the logic teddy roosevelt enshrined and policing large chunks of latin america always in the name of internal stability but somehow never really helping to further that cause now you fast forward a couple of presidents, right? Uh, So TR has his time in the sun, and then it's 1912, and this cool cat named Woodrow Wilson is running for president. Um, (laughs) Now, Woodrow, as part of his, like, election campaign, he starts shopping around something at campaign rallies called the Pan-American Treaty. Um, And his idea for the Pan-American Treaty would have been a little bit like creating a U.S., like, not a U.S., but an American EU, right? So the EU, you've got, like, this continent, uh, all these states in it that have been independent start to, like, form 
form common economic and trade zones and stuff. And in and in Wilson's mind, the Pan American Treaty was going to include the United States, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile, which were then kind of the most powerful nations in the region. Now, I found a really good master's thesis from a guy who's a historian now named Dr. Matthew Hassett, and he kind of summarizes the goal of the Pan American Treaty. And I'm going to quote from him now. His plan contained two main points. The first was mutual guarantees of political independence under Republican forms of government and mutual guarantees of territorial integrity. The second was that the signatories to the treaty would acquire complete control within its jurisdiction of the manufacture and sale of munitions of war. The wording of these points is telling. In the first, signatories must guarantee the survival of Republican forms of government. Wilson believed peace and security rested on the establishment and maintenance of liberal democracies. Member nations would only ensure the maintenance of Republican forms of government. However, the United States would send in the Navy and the Marines to ensure compliant governments regardless of how they came to power. So number one, he's ensuring, you know quote-unquote, Republican forms of government. And there's a difference between a Republican government and a democracy. Number two, he's he's insisting that these this new political union that he's working for would acquire, like, complete control of the manufacture of sale and uh, of munitions, um, which, which essentially is saying, like, the United States and her allies are going to have complete control of what weapons get made and where they get distributed. That's that's the idea as early as 1912 in Wilson. We must now pause here Wilson's, because imagine yeah. a world that – it's just crazy to me how quickly we're like, oh, I don't care what's happening with any of the people that actually live there. Like there are entire indigenous communities with their yes. own forms of government. And like I, I'm trying to imagine the – Braun, the force it takes to just walk into somebody else's neighborhood, district, country and be like, no, this is how we do things now. So also you can only buy guns from us. Please yeah. kill each other with our weapons. And also like whatever indigenous concern, whatever concerns you as indigenous people have, the thing that matters most to us is making sure that arms sales are respected and that the kind of governments we like come to power and we'll send our troops in if you fuck with either of those things, which are the only things we care about in your whole country with whatever history it has. Like fuck that shit. We're here for selling guns and ensuring a form of government that we can dominate. So that's cool. Wilson was known as was what's known as a reformer imperialist. Uh, now that means he did reject a lot of the obvious cruelties of European style colonialism with like permanent and direct military occupation of foreign lands. But he still wanted the US to be able to loot and culturally dominate an entire continent. He was still willing <laughs> to use the military to do that. Just ask the people of Veracruz. Um, now, uh, he framed this as simple compassion on his part. He thought the United States should use its power to ensure good government in nearby lands. And he never bothered to define what good government was. But he was emphatic that the U.S. should use the basically use the Marines to violently force Latin American governments to have what he would consider to be good governments, which Yikes. is where you ever hear the catchphrase like send in the Marines. It's not really used that much now, but it's like, um. Uh, you deal with a problem, right? You send in the Marines. Um, right. Like it was the thing they used to say, like my, when my grandpa was like a young man. Um, and it, but it, it comes out of this period because Wilson basically says, if anything starts happening in these Latin American governments that we don't approve of in the United States, we'll send in the Marines to fuck them up. Um, because the Marines, the Marine Corps is kind of like historically the people we send in to fuck up folks. Right. Um, They've got like a very hardcore like. like training program. And I've listened to that. And I've they're very mobile. Marines. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're extremely mobile. That's a big part of it. 
Um, and they like boats, which are useful for traveling places, uh, I've been told. <laughs> so, y- you know what is also useful for traveling places, Joelle? Mm. The products and services that support this podcast, including our main sponsor, the United States Marine Corps. The United States <laughs> Marine Corps. Do you need some guys on boats to fuck, to fuck people up? Because that's essentially the Marine Corps. <laughs> they're coming and they're gonna get you. Yeah, they have helicopters too, but they will just replace your president. That's not what no they're famous asked. for. Yeah, products. Yay! The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. Oh, thank you, United States Marine Corps. Uh, it was a weird choice to sponsor this podcast, but 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 we appreciate it. Um, I don't know. I don't know where to take. I don't know where else to take this joke. Woodrow Wilson laid out his vision of the future very openly in campaign speeches in 1912, declaring that the United States had a special place on the world stage as a disseminator of democracy. He told crowds, we are chosen and prominently chosen to show the way that to the nations of the world how they shall walk in the paths of liberty. Uh, now, the, the guy, the, the, the historian who wrote this master's thesis that I found, Dr. Hassett, argues that Wilson's dedication to spreading democracy was real kind of within Wilson's conception of democracy, but it was also heavily compromised by his outrageous racism. Um, and Dr. Hassett writes, Wilson's racism obscured his vision of a new world order. While the president of Princeton University, Wilson successfully persuaded all African-Americans to withdraw their applications for admission. Josephus Daniels, a Wilson campaign manager, Manager and later his secretary of the Navy, stoked racial fears in East St. Louis to garner votes. Once in office, Wilson told darky stories and jokes during cabinet meetings and presided over the segregation of the Department of the Treasury, Post Office, and the Bureau of Engraving. These offices had been desegregated since the end of the Civil War. Wilson refused to condemn the lynching of blacks, and the only federal actions taken regarding racial conflict was to keep African Americans from attaining equality. So that's Wilson, is the guy who, like, in 1912, expands segregation. Um... That so, is the craziest thing, especially knowing like what's around the corner for black people in government jobs. Like if you yeah. look post like yeah. 1950s, early 1960s, we see a lot of black people starting to work for the post office. It's like the only like quote unquote respectable job you can get as a black person is like doing some type of government work. Um, usually like low level uh, foot blue collar kind of stuff. And I, garbage I would argue like that. that maybe the only respectable government job that exists is the post office um, hey. and park rangers, post office and park rangers. What else do we really need? We love you guys. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, this is, this is important, not just because like, oh, here's a story about another racist American president, but because this plays directly into what Wilson is thinking about what he's doing in Latin America, because Wilson mm -hmm. is a guy who does believe in democracy. Like he worked himself ill trying to push forward this vision he had of the League of Nations. And like one of the problems, whenever we have someone who's terrible and Woodrow Wilson's a horrible person, I think people tend to 
just kind of write it off as that and and assume they don't really believe things. And Wilson is a big believer in his uh, what he considers to be democracy. Um, democracy which for is, white people. And, and democracy, it's a republic, right? That's a big thing for him is it's not he's not a fan of like the this uh, like a pure democracy. He's like a populist democracy. Mm. Um, Wilson believes that you should have a republic dominated by white people who are able to direct things and act as patient stewards for their racial inferiors. Wilson believed that democracy was the fullest form of state life and non-white peoples were not ready to take part in that, which is why you need a part of why you need a republic. Um, he believed that they needed to undergo what he called a period of political tutelage <sighs> in order to know how to be good democratic citizens. So this, this is like very vital information to me, Robert, because it helps me understand like why some people still hold these beliefs. Yes. Like, it's, yes. it's hard to wrap your mind around. I think, I mean, I don't, like, I'll just speak for myself. Like, from living in black skin, sometimes it's hard to be like, okay, but where where is this hate rooted in? And I understand from a larger perspective, like, okay, you believe that because of the way history has been taught to you, I know a lot of racist white people believe, like, oh, white people invented everything. And white people are the ones who, like, colonized the world. And we made sure you believed in God or, like, sane things. And we invented all of the science. So clearly we're, like, the superior race. But, like, to hear it on, like, a governmental level like this idea of we can train the blackness the part we fear the part that doesn't sit right with us the part that isn't like us out of you and then that's like the world that will be better like that's how we uplift and make the world better is by removing it's like it's horrifying it's so scary like it's scary because it's happening right now it is happening right now and one of the reasons i think this is so important to understand is that number 1 there are a lot of people today who will say the same basic things about the us and its actions and the way that it influences and sort of changes the political course of other nations like like political lives right now mm. there's people who will argue the same basic things wilson will argue um they will not argue the same things domestically and the fact that because they because you can't admit that right you can't sit down you can as an american today say hey like these people need to learn from us the the ways of democracy and it's our responsibility to teach right like that that we fucking afghanistan and iraq and like a whole yes. bunch of places all around the world like that's that's going on today and there's people who will argue forcefully for that you can't say black people aren't ready to be full democratic citizens and they need our tutelage as white people, which is why we have to oppress them. You can't say that openly in mm. mainstream politics anymore. But the fact that people argue for that in foreign countries shows you what they believe about the domestic situation. Right. And if they just look, learned how not to use those words. Yeah. Here. Looking at Woodrow Wilson, I think, is important because we see we can see the truth of what the people who believe that shit internationally are saying, what they also believe domestically. They're the same as Woodrow Wilson. They haven't changed. It's just not acceptable to say what he says or what, say what he used to say. Um, I think that's important for people to kind of understand. And we don't it's talk vital. about it. Yeah. I agree. So uh, Dr. Hassett goes on to write, quote, the supposed need for a period of tutelage was Wilson's method of justifying interventions in Latin America and the disenfranchisement of blacks in the United States. Non-whites needed the guidance of whites, often lasting many years until they were ready to operate autonomously in a democracy. Of course, it was whites who then decided when their pupils passed their civics courses. So, yeah. Become white like us. Yeah. When, when a, a majority, I feel yeah. like, especially if I look at like, Countries like Colombia and Brazil and the way that 
white passing people were sort of allowed to ascend the ranks while we look yes. at you read a lot of stories of like brown, black, indigenous, former slaves talking about like where their class system is at and how similar almost exactly the way it has worked in America has fostered over there as well. This, the idea of segregation, the idea of like, even, even the basic like non-political stuff, like the idea of good hair and who gets to be on billboards and things like Mm -hmm. that. It is absolutely insane. Even their attempts to like desegregate, like to, to desegregate and to bring in like black people has had like horrifyingly racist connotations if we look at like a lot of spanish soaps where you're just like good lord is this still where we're at representation wise and then sometimes i'll just look around here too and be like oh well you know i can i can complain and and maybe i get a little bit on my woodrow wilson box and be like they should learn from us and the ways we've desegregated our um hollywood system our media empire but we haven't we still have so many issues here as well in how we represent black people such a yeah, problem. we don't seem to be good at it. We're good no. at good at tear gas, though. That's oh my god, to be so proud of. great! We're amazing at, at tear gas. We're we know so how to beat the hell out of a protester. Oh, Just now, if you if you want entire city blocks tear gassed i know some guys who are just pros at it at this point oh my god and now we know um, how to fence off the white house so really we growing. know how to fence off the white house yeah we're growing anyway so back to back to wilson let's talk about woodrow <laughs> wilson so wilson gets elected uh this north american you know pan-american treaty thing gets signed uh it, it takes a while though it's not signed until 1923 it, it, but yeah world war one happens and wilson like lets the u.s get pulled into that clusterfuck um and it takes until after the war when the league of Nations gets established the Pan-American Treaty gets signed as part of a bunch of international League of Nations pacts. But kind of like a lot of the rest of the League of Nations shit, it doesn't amount to much. But the impulse that the pact represented, this idea that the U.S. could could group up with the strongest nations in Latin America, sell them arms and use them to dictate how everyone in the continent lived without using U.S. troops, that idea never like went out of vogue in the U.S. government. Um, up until the present day, and and just so you know where kind of we are eventually headed in here, it's equally popular with Republicans and Democrats. So like, no matter where you land on this, Joe Biden loves him some fucking. We'll talk about Plan Columbia maybe a little bit. That's, but yeah. So uh, World War II kind of distracts the United States from affairs in you know its its own hemisphere for a while. We're not we're not focusing so much on Latin America during that whole war thing because it's you know a lot of stuff's going on in the other parts yeah, of the world. It's um, we have other people to kill. We'll be we back. have other we have so many people to kill. Um <laughs> and thankfully like some of them deserve it, which is better than we usually do. Well, yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. World War II was the time where some of the people we bombed from the sky deserved to die. Uh oh, man. That, How we have forgotten so quickly <laughs> is crazy to me. Yeah. Ah. So, uh, yeah, it also, like, World War II also saw the sudden pullout of European military advisors from a lot of South American states. Because while, like, they hadn't been, like, European colonialism never kind of 
in the in the modern era got was even vaguely on the same levels like what happened in Africa mm. um, because of the Monroe Doctrine. There were still it was still a lot of European involvement in Latin America. They were they were selling arms to a lot of these states, and they would send in military advisors to train their militaries. And it was a way both of European states kind of projecting power, and of course it was very profitable. Um, and if you were in Latin America, you were an up and coming state, and you wanted to get because there were all these wars between Latin American powers in this period of time to constant, constant, really horrific wars. So if you're one of these states, you have a lot of enemies all around you and you want to get a jump on your opponents, um, you you want to be partnered with some state that has a more advanced military, both access to better guns and access to better sort of training um, and like military organizational techniques. And, you know, the U.S. was certainly in a, a more advanced state than a lot of Latin America at this point. But Europe was the gold standard prior to World War II. Um, so a lot of these Latin American countries before World War II, they have like German or French or Italian, unfortunately, Italian. You don't want them as military advisors. But ideally, you'd have like the Germans <laughs> or the French or something advising your military. Like Argentina spent about a century uh, using German officers to train their militaries. And actually, up until like the present day, you can find pictures of the shit from the 90s. I don't know if it's continued past that. You can find pictures of Argentine soldiers giving the fascist salute because that's how they were trained wow. to salute. Like a lot of actually one of Hitler's best friends you know, best friends who Hitler then had killed um, this guy, sure, sure, as you do. Uh, like the leader of the brown shirts, went and trained Argentine soldiers d while the Nazis were in power. So like a, a lot of different Latin American states have European advisors and stuff. But by the end of the Second World War, Europe was kind of broken as a military power. Even the states that had won were in ruins. Uh, France yeah. and Germany were like bled white. And the governments of Latin America like started have needing to look to the United States for military training and for equipment because the U.S. has all the guns at this point. And it has a huge military. It has a lot of excess shit to sell. It has a lot of soldiers to send over to train them. Um, and Europe just doesn't. So me at the same kind of time while all these Latin American states are start like turning from Europe to the United States for advice on how to have armies. The guys at sort of the top of the political establishment in the U.S. were kind of starting to realize the position the end of World War II had left them in. And, you know, everyone knows in World War II, the U.S. is kind of the big power in the world. But I don't think a lot of people know how what a dominant position we had. At the end of World War II, the United States was in control of fully half of the planet's wealth. What? Yeah. Half of the wealth in the world was controlled by the United States. Um, so in 1945. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I'm trying. I mean, I guess it makes sense if you think about like how much of the world was like absolutely decimated. Yeah, just, and how, just totally fucked. Yeah. And how clean, like it's always I, I love studying like what was happening as we come out of World War II uh, culturally, because the idea of like all of these women being forced back into their homes so rapidly as to reduce their status and power in not just in like outside of their homes not just in businesses and stuff but in the government too like we had risen up to take so much power and then this idea of like black people who had come back from the war and the way they were treated is basically like you didn't do anything for me and you're still just a black person there's yeah. like so much people like there were so many opportunities for quick development on a social level that because i think because we had money mm -hmm. access and access to guns and power and because we were really feeling ourselves uh was squashed so quickly and i think yeah. that's really scary to think about how both when we are in power and when we are out of power we tend to take a dump on everybody who isn't a white male that is yeah. wild
it's the the real one of the real tragedies of World War II is at the end of it, the U.S. had the power and influence to do literally anything. Mm. Um, and we basically chose to hoard that wealth and power and compromise every single thing we've ever claimed as a as a core belief of this nation um, in order to try to keep it for as long as possible. And that li- this kind of thinking, people talk directly about this in the U.S. government. The, and I, I'm going to quote now from a State Department policymaker named George Kinnan, who was one of like the most influential minds in the U.S. during the Cold War. This is something George Kinnan wrote in 1948. And he's talking about kind of how he's talking about U.S. policy in Southeast Asia at this time. But it applies to kind of the, the, the way that the men in charge of our government post-World War II were looking at the whole world. So this is something George Kennan wrote for the State Department. We have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. This disparity is particularly great as between ourselves and the peoples of Asia. In this situation, we cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment. Our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity without positive detriment to our national security. To do so, we will have to dispense with all sentimentality and daydreaming, and our attention will have to be concentrated everywhere on our most immediate national objective if we need not deceive ourselves that we can afford today the luxury of altruism and world benefaction. Wow. Just laying it all out there. Now, Kinnan was watching his nation, like the specific thing that prompted him to write this is he was watching the United States start to flail around in China, because at this point, China Civil War is still going on. We're backing, you know, the the quote unquote Democratic sort of side of things uh, or the Republicans or whatever, which is not working out great. And we're starting like shit in South Korea. Like that's beginning kind of like we're starting to see that like what what's was called at the time French Indochina, like a bunch of shit's going to go wrong there. Right. Like France is starting to get fucked up by Vietnamese rebels. Yeah. And it's it's becoming obvious to folks in the State Department that Southeast Asia is going to be a place where the U.S. either has to just kind of uh, abandon to the influence of these, quote unquote, communist powers, or it's going we're going to burn a lot of treasure and lives fighting there. Um, so Kennan at the time is kind of specifically referring to U.S. policy in Asia. But again, the pattern of thinking that he talks about up there, this idea that the most important thing is to maintain the position of disparity we have with the rest of the world. And we can't we can't let ourselves um, you know, I'm reminded, like, we can't let ourselves be, hum- like, think about altruism and stuff. We have to think about holding on to power. And it, it does make me, um, it, it, it reminds me reading that of a quote from Rudyard Kipling's White Man's Burden. Um, Take mm-hmm. up the white man's burden. Ye dare not stoop to less, nor call too loud on freedom to cloak your weariness. Like, it's the same, the same pattern of thought, right? Like, where you can't, you can't let yourself... What it, what's important is maintaining this position of disparity and maintaining our position of power. And you can't let whatever we we claim to believe, you can't let that matter more to you than continuing to dominate. Um, that's it, it's interesting to me. You can draw like it's the same kind of thinking that you see in the British Empire, too. It just got transferred over to us when we took power. So. Again, this is Kennan talking about Southeast Asia, but it's you can generalize it to a lot of how a lot of American leaders in the late 40s are thinking about Latin America. I want to read one more quote from George Kennan's write up there before we before we continue on. 
we should cease to talk about vague and for the Far East, unreal objectives such as human rights, the raising of the living standards and democratization. The day is not far off when we are going to have to deal in straight power concepts. The less we are then hampered by idealistic slogans, the better. Wow. Uh, I'm going to use a slogan from Don Draper, and it's, I have a life, and it goes in only one direction, forward. And this whole, like, mentality of late 40s, like, needing to not just make, like, you have almost all of the power. Like, that breakdown of 50% of the wealth to 6% of the population. It's astounding. Ideology that, like, we have to continue to build on that. Why would you... How could you possibly need to build? Like, that is the most mind-fucked thing ever. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine being like, oh, I have 50% of everything. How do I get more? Like, how yeah. hungry are you? Yeah, and, and, and like the idea that like we have to immediately discard our beliefs about democracy and human rights in order to maintain the power that we currently hold. No more nothing's dreaming. more important than the power. Yeah. And again, this isn't the period after which like kind of America, like I think a lot of people looking at this story think that like America's like idealism was broken by Vietnam. This is 1948, right? <laughs> like, crazy. We, it wasn't like the cold war wasn't even like really up to what it would become. Like there was still like world war two had just ended. Fascism had just been beat it. And immediately we're like, well, nothing matters more than keeping all this money that we've got fuck human rights that's the people in the most influential folks in the state department are saying this shit so again kennan was writing about southeast asia there but you really can generalize what he's saying to what a lot of u.s state department and, and sort of military thinkers in latin america believe these people supported straight power and they they found themselves kind of discarding unrealistic objectives like human rights because straight power is they thought that they would have claimed that it's more realistic. It's really that it's just easier. It's easier to shoot people than to try to improve their material conditions. Um, even though improving their material conditions probably does cost less in, as a general rule. So the school of the Americas became this thing that we're talking about today. The actual focus of our article was what became these men's kind of the linchpin in their plan to do that in Latin America. Um, and it's also sort of a, it acted as kind of a fulfillment of Woodrow Wilson's dream, the United States being able to act as a police force for Latin America to ensure good, what he we would consider good governance. So the U.S. spends the first few years after World War II kind of rebuilding Europe and starting to fuck around in Asia, and there wasn't a lot of military manpower to spare in Latin America. So the decision was made to do something more subtle than the Pentagon traditionally did, you know, rather than just like sending in troops and like building bases. In 1946, the Army established a new training school for foreign soldiers in the Panama Canal Zone, which is still under U.S. control, right? Panama, the Panama Canal is like owned by the United States at this point. It's it's not its own independent thing. Our government is basically like it's a little U.S. outpost in Latin America. And so they they build a new school there to train officers from all around Latin America, and they call it the Latin American Training Center Ground Division. And at this point, Ground Division is just kind of like what I'm going to call the school. So this is what it's named before it's called the School of the Americas. So in 1947, the United States had signed the Rio Treaty with 20 different Latin American nations. Now, this was kind of an expansion of a lot of the ideas that Wilson had had back in 1912. It was a mutual defense pact meant on paper to provide a unified hemispheric front against like a foreign invasion. Um, 
this was all window dressing. The real agenda of the treaty had nothing to do with mutual defense for the hemisphere and everything to do with the maintenance of U.S. political dominance in the region and control over raw materials. And I'm going to quote now from a book, a really good book called The School of the Americas by Leslie Gill. Quote, while the United States dedicated itself to containing the global expansion of the Soviet Union and persecuted domestic critics with varying degrees of intensity, it assigned its Latin American allies the task of guarding against the threat posed by internal subversion. National Security Doctrine, NSD, provided the broad rationale for fighting communists by assigning the maintenance of internal order to Latin American security forces and by delegating to the United States the task of guarding the ramparts of the Western Hemisphere from external aggression. So you see what, what's what's being done here? This is being framed as like we need to protect our hemisphere from like a Soviet invasion. What's really happening is the U.S., so because it doesn't have a lot of troops to spare at the moment, is setting up arming and training Latin American national militaries to act as internal security forces to keep communism out of Latin America. That's what's being done here. We're building a continental police force to enforce American political ideology on an entire continent. When the school like... When the school opens, right, and there's this – because I'm trying to picture, like, the type of person that goes into this. Like, I know the type of person who believes they can go into the police force and change it and make it a a force and a space for good. Very normal soldiers at first. So initially – and this is like you hear a lot of folks on the left on like Twitter and stuff talk about the School of the Americas. And generally, most of what they talk about is stuff that happened kind of later on when there was. And we'll talk about like all the torture classes and shit that happened. But that wasn't how it started. It started as very normal military training. Its first class was a bunch of Argentine soldiers who were being taught to use U.S. anti-aircraft guns that their nation had just been allowed to purchase. So it was not there's nothing really shady there. Right. Like they buy these advanced weapons from the U.S. that are primarily defensive in nature, and they need to be trained in how to use them. Um, So the actual classes, the goal of the ground school at first, there's nothing really, you wouldn't call that shady, right? Like, that's a reasonable thing to do if you believe selling arms is reasonable. It's reasonable to like, oh, yeah, you should train them how to use the guns. Okay, that's fine. And the most dangerous thing that's going on here is not the actual curriculum of the school. It's what's happening around that curriculum. But yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. I want to quote something Leslie Gill writes here about sort of what the defense industry is starting to do in Latin America in this period. Quote, Defense manufacturers sought out new markets for their wares, and Congress created generous military aid programs. Facilitating arms transfers not only helped secure U.S. access to raw materials and the general cooperation of regional militaries, it also tied Latin American militaries to the use and thus the continued purchase of technology produced in the United States. The defense establishment referred to the latter as standardizing Latin American militaries. Wow. Yeah. And the Caribbean defense commander put it bluntly when he stated that standardizing Latin American armies with U.S. equipment furthered the, quote, penetration of the United States into the military system of any country so that such nation becomes dependent on us. You can't standardize humans. But you can standardize the equipment that they use, and then you make them dependent on you. They can't fight you. They can't rebel against you. They can't resist you 
if they need your factories to produce the weaponry that allows them to defend themselves from their neighbors. This is devious as hell. Oh yes, it's extremely God. insidious. Because now we also know everything you have. We know yes. all of the tools and yes. we can advance our shit before we give you access to the advanced shit. So we're always one step ahead. Oh my God. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. U.S. weapons were, again, considered the most advanced on the planet at the time. And Latin American militaries were very much comparatively technologically backwards compared to the United States in this period. A lot of them had recently been at war with each other, so there was really very reasonable fear of invasion, of losing territory. It had just happened for a lot of them. Um, so the, there was this understanding that, number one, you can defend yourself, you can gain massive local advantages by buying U.S. guns, but it also, on the U.S. side, it gives us this permanent influence in national politics because the ammunition that these weapons need, the parts that they need, the training, they're reliant on the United States for all of that. Wow. But the thing that was truly insidious about the ground school had nothing to do with weaponry and everything to do with what I would consider to be the deadliest fantasy in a human history, probably the American dream. Oh. And that's what we're going to talk about after we get back from uh, the real American dream, which is products and services. Yeah. Yeah. That's America. right. Let's do it. Buy some things. Buy some things. Products. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. 
My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts All right, we're back, and we're talking about the thing that was most dangerous about the American school. And this is the thing that everybody I see talking about this shit on Twitter, like, really does seem to miss, which is not that, like, they're not wrong about the torture programs being awful and, like, everything else we're going to talk about. But I don't see this being referenced. And the it's the thing that the strikes me. Of, the hope of having a dollar and a dream coming to yeah. yeah. This is what, and this is this is really fascinating to me. So in the late 1940s and 50s, right, the U.S. winds up after the war with all of the money in the fucking world. And this leads to an unprecedented explosion in, like, the rates of home ownership, vehicle ownership, employment, job security. Regular people suddenly were gaining access to labor-saving devices like washing machines and dishwashers, luxury products like televisions. It was a it was a heady period of time. And it, it, it was easy to kind of, when you see regular working people make these kinds of gains, it's easy for the propaganda of like, this is because there's something special and beautiful about this this dream America oh, has for yeah. what life can be. It's very easy to sell that when you've mm-hmm. got, because this is a period, you do have to, like, obviously the, the benefits in this period weren't evenly shared, but like, black people, you know, made a lot of, uh, it, like, like wealth improvements and stuff in this oh, time yeah. too. Everybody did. It wasn't evenly distributed, but it, you can look at damn near anybody in the United States who's working class in like the late 40s, early 50s and be like, God damn, there might be something to this US, this American dream thing. Um, yeah. And the rest of the world isn't benefiting from that, right? Um, but they're look they're on, they're able to look in from the outside and they're able to see what's happening in the United States. And the soldiers who are being sent from other Latin American countries to Panama to partake in the ground school because Panama is run by the United States, they get to live in that world for a brief period of time. These students, most of whom had come from lower middle class families and very, very poor nations, are able to get a glimpse into the American way of life. Um, they're, they're, they're getting paid money. They're, getting, they're able to buy American products. And so they're, they're, they kind of get, get a taste of what Americans are enjoying in the late 40s and early 50s. So in, the, in 1948, the ground school starts to offer a special training program for Argentine officers and enlisted men that mixed technical training with what Leslie Gill calls cultural persuasion. 
The U.S. Army officials at the ground school wanted badly to make a good impression on the Argentines, who had broadly leaned towards the Axis during the war. Because remember, Germany had taught their army a lot of bunch of stuff. So as Argentina was one of the great powers of Latin America, gaining their trust successfully, you know, and drawing them into the bosom of U.S. power was seen as a really important thing to do. Um, it was a critical step in kind of locking down the continent and the whole hemisphere. Quote from Leslie Gill, they dwelled on every aspect of the training program, they being the U.S. trainers, which they believed carried considerable symbolic weight for the United States. One individual effused that it is no exaggeration to state that the cooperation and the solidarity of the Western Hemisphere nations depends to a great degree upon the impressions which the Argentine personnel take back with them to their native country. Army officers describe the Argentines as extremely high-type personnel who are probably well-qualified. They told everyone who interacted with them to learn the customs of the Argentine army and to recognize the insignia used to designate particular ranks. Most importantly, the officials advised course instructors from the 56th Anti-Aircraft Artillery Group to instill among the trainees faith in the weapons, and in this way to draw a connection between the power weapons in the United States. They asserted that if the Argentines had confidence in the weapons, they would have confidence in the United States. And this confidence would spread when the Argentines returned home and taught others to use the guns. Building confidence in the United States was a complex undertaking that involved much more than impressive weaponry. The Argentine trainees held strong opinions about their national and racial superiority vis-a-vis -vis other Latin Americans, and these views did mm. not go unappreciated by their North American hosts. So, fortunately, uh, for this whole dream of getting Argentina on the U.S.'s side, if there's one thing you could rely on U.S. military planners in 1948 to know how to do, it was how to be super fucking racist. So sure. officers at the ground school wrote that it was essential in view of the nationalistic feelings of the Argentine and their belief in certain <laughs> racial theories that they be made to feel they enjoy equal privileges with American officers and enlisted men. So Wow. Like most places in the American empire, the ground school in Panama was, was pretty segregated. White American soldiers ate better food, lived in better dorms, and enjoyed higher standards of comfort than their Latin American students. Uh, so they start issuing the Argentine soldiers passes that distinguish them from other Latin American students at the ground school and grant them privileges such as special food rights, exemption from maintenance duties carried out by darker-skinned Latin Americans. And, you know, obviously the U.S. military in Panama has kind of its own racial theories. Um, they believe that, like, whites suffered more from prolonged exposure to intense heat and humidity than, than <laughs> other people's who are more susceptible to certain diseases. Um, yeah, so... I laugh because racism is so easy. Like, I get yeah. it. Like, we, I, we, I've been talking a lot about racism. I write about, you yeah. know, black representation in media. And it's, like, it's so vividly easy to see like the comfort racism provides like oh, yeah. my skin is, is so fair how could i possibly do the labor this person is do look at their dark skin they just they're made for the this. sun right yeah. off of it this is where you belong and yeah. you know the idea that we essentially brainwashed a people to believe that like if we think about too the way that the way racism separates and divides makes it nearly impossible to come together and have those conversations that allow you as like a community to grow and develop. So this idea of like, oh, make sure the lighter skin, like Latin Americans understand that they're better so that as a country, they can never, there will always be unrest in that space. That is <laughs> so sick. Yeah, it's really fucked up. 
Um, and there's this, there's this, so what's happening there is like white people kind of believed had been like dark skinned people in Latin America in the canal zone had been doing all the physical labor because of this belief that like white people, like they just weren't, weren't as suited to hard labor. Mm. And we, we add the Argentinian soldiers in, like we treat them as white people as part of a propaganda campaign to kind of get that number one, to separate them from other Latin Americans further, um, and to kind of get them on our side. Um, so there's this kind of immediate willingness to like start racially playing the peoples of Latin America against each other. Um, now, yeah, so this is, this is, uh, has a big impact on Argentinian soldiers and it provides them with a taste of the American way of life, a sample of what it's like to be a white American. Um, and this meshes well with kind of the other tastes they were offered at the ground school. Students were paid to attend. And as Panama was under U.S. control, it's a place where they could buy a lot of consumer goods. This included a lot of labor saving devices and luxury products that would have been unavailable back in these students' home countries, things like laundry machines and dishwashers and blenders. In the late 40s and early 50s, a lot of this stuff was, was just kind of like magic to many of these soldiers coming into the canal zone. And the fact that they could buy this stuff now and were being like able to kind of participate in this, this racially segregated society on the top of it for a period of time, it not only does it reinforce the idea in their mind that the U.S. is this kind of all-powerful utopia, but it lets them feel like they're a part of it. Um, and yeah, so that's that's a big aspect of what the American, uh, you know, at this point called the ground school is trying to do with these soldiers. To be fair, though, Robert, I still find washing machines and dishwashers to be magical. <laughs> I hate them. Not a fan. Not a fan. Well, I like washing machines. I don't like dishwashers. Fair. So, uh, school instructors worked hard to keep their students occupied constantly with very little unstructured downtime, and this, too, was part of the grander strategy. Leslie Gill writes, quote, They did so for two reasons. First, they hoped to convey to the students a particular vision of U.S. citizens as industrious and successful. Second, they wanted to keep students in the canal zone and out of Panama. Officials worried that disorders created by students, such as public drunkenness, expressions of immorality, or fights, would provoke the ire of Panamanian authorities and cause a public relations difficulty for the U.S. military. The the commandant did not mince words when he told a group of staff officers that in addition to taking care of these people and making them welcome and happy while here, they must be kept busy, organize their instructions, make the schedule so that they do not have too much free time, give them organized athletics so that they will stay in the zone and out of Panama. They are here to learn the equipment and technique. They must carry with them the impression that this is the way we work and why we are a great nation. So... Again, this is all there's 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 this kind of basic military training going on, but there's also this much deeper cultural training and what what the United States is and kind of us pushing like this is what your country should be. Um, this reminds me a lot of the vow. I don't know if you guys are. Watching yeah, the yeah. There's this idea it's all of, coat shit. There's not enough said yeah. about that. Yeah, you're very yeah, like, right. yeah. The brainwashing, the way, like, a lot of the way they treat them like children, this idea of, like, oh, no, the devil, an idle mind is a devil's workshop. Like, make yeah. sure they're they're kept busy because who knows what they'll get up to on their own devices. Like, that wasn't, at least from what I just heard, it wasn't based off of, like, oh, these are, like, young kids who are getting rowdy. Let's, no. you know, give them something constructive to do. It's like, well, they might embarrass us, so let's make sure they stay under our thumb. Like, yeah, I, th yeah so much of racism is infantilization of a people, and I, it's... Yeah. Yeah. 
there's a lot going on here. So for more than a decade, this kind of goes on. And the, the ground school quietly trains hundreds and then eventually thousands of soldiers from not just Argentina, but Guatemala, Chile, and a bunch of other countries in Latin America. And these men walked away from their months. It was often like a year-long course in Panama mm -hmm. with more than just an expanded understanding of U.S. weaponry. They left with deep and personal knowledge of the wonders of American culture, American capitalism, the benefits that it could bring. And they, they walked away in a, a lot of cases with an understanding, a personal brief and fleeting understanding of, of how good it felt to be a winner in that society. Wow. So these young, ambitious men get this taste of America at its height, and then they go home to their own nations, which must, must have felt like crude backwaters by comparison. There's not a lot of luxury goods and appliances to buy. People don't work in the same way. Like this capitalism thing that has taken over the whole world now hadn't yet. And it's this kind of like what, what's one of the things that a lot of Latin American cultures are, are known for, you know, really, really um, – putting a lot of emphasis on this idea of like a siesta or whatever. Like you don't always work all the time. There's like culturally you build in periods of rest because it's healthy to rest even in like the middle of the day. We mm -hmm. don't fucking do that in America. We drink coffee so that you can work through, you know, a 16 hour shift. Right. So these guys, these, these young ambitious men get a taste of, you know, American main manic work culture and the kind of the, the kind of benefits that it can bring in terms of like the things you get to own when you partake in it and succeed. And then they go home to these countries where like people don't have the same attitude towards work and don't have access to a lot of the same luxury goods and appliances. And they draw connections between all this stuff and they start to they start to place blame on segments of their society for why they don't get to enjoy the same things they enjoyed, you know, in the Panama zone, including the fact that indigenous cultures in these regions valued leisure and community over relentless capitalism. Um, and including the fact that there were a lot of left-wing movements who were arguing that like things should be nationalized rather than this kind of uh, free for all laissez-faire shit that the U S really wanted to push in all of these Latin American countries because it benefited larger and already established American corporations. So not only you know, they're frustrated when they come back and they also have a ready group of people within their own countries to blame for the fact that things aren't the way they want them to be at home now that they know how, you know, things are in the United States. So a lot of these soldiers, you know, they would finish their time in their respective militaries after going to the ground school and they go on and do something else. But a significant number of them went on to be career officers. And since training at the ground school was prestigious, they often rose high in the ranks of their national militaries. As the 50s rolled along, there were a series of left-wing revolutions in Latin America. In 1952, Bolivia had a left-wing coup, you know, kind of socialisty that brought in a new government that was dead set on nationalizing every mine in the country, which at that point were basically owned by a bunch of U.S.-based corporations. Uh, then, of course, there's the Cuban Revolution of 1959, which brought that bearded heartthrob Castro, you know, into the <laughs> hearts and minds of everybody. Um, and then, yeah, it, it kind of, it, it seems like in the early 50s, the left is on the rise in Latin America. Um, and it was, in the eyes of a lot of these officers who have been thoroughly if you know you compare it, you compared it earlier to a cult they've been thoroughly enraptured by the cult of the american way of life it seems like these these left wing movements are hell bent on stopping latin america from ever achieving that same dream so 
the U.S. government gets caught off guard by all of these revolutions, as it generally is by everything that happens. Uh, and Latin America, like they saw it as basically our property. And suddenly, like the, the Russians are parking nuclear missiles in Cuba, 70 miles off the, the, the Florida coast. So U.S. officials kind of panic and they're afraid that they might start to lose the whole region to this new wave of left wing politicians. Uh, the prevailing kind of political wisdom at the time was something called the domino theory, which stated that the fall of one nation to communism would start this like horrible chain reaction that would doom the whole continent. Because they're all the same. Yeah, yeah. And there's no way that people could be like, what if we just had free health care and we didn't let random foreign companies own everything in the country? And it's like, <laughs> no, that the on- that only leads to uh, identical things to Stalinism and Maoism. You, could, you couldn't just do that and then keep just like, whatever. It's a very frustrating idea that people have. So the U.S. like panics as these revolutions start to take hold and they start turning to this network they have in Latin America of all of these military officers who are dedicated pro-U.S. capitalists just kind of waiting in the wings, furious at these damn commies who are like pulling their people away from the promised land of being able to buy washing machines. So by the time the Cuban Revolution succeeded, nearly about 8,000 students had graduated the ground school, and these guys were a good start. But Washington realized that kind of the revolution sweeping Latin America were of such a scope that they were going to need a lot more than 8,000 dudes to put a lid on all of this. Now, President Kennedy is the guy who issued orders for the ground school to start training students in counterinsurgency. U.S. Special Forces were sent to the ground school and they start teaching courses and traveling around to these countries too and teaching people. And, you know, the, the, the exact nature of the counterterrorism courses that start getting counterinsurgency courses that start getting taught after Kennedy gives the order, um, Professor Michael McClintock describes them as the legitimization of state terrorism as a means to confront dissent, subversion, and insurgency. And that's, oh, that's really good. what's... Yeah, the we start backing state terrorism in order to stop left-wing politics in Latin Jesus America. Christ. That's what happens in this period. And that's again, people accusing me of like going after the right wing. That's JFK. Like let's just keep that all in <laughs> mind. That that's fucking JFK who does this, right? Um so in 1963, they changed the name of the ground school to the School of the Americas. That's when that that alteration happens. And this new name kind of reflected its expanded role as a tool in the hands of the U.S. government. So in 1967, just a couple years later, uh, that's when Che Guevara, who had kind of gotten his start as a cute, like fighting with Castro, launches a guerrilla campaign in Southeast Bolivia. Uh, And the School of the Americas, you know, had started kind of years before this as left-wing sort of militancy in Bolivia had grown. They'd started taking in more and more Bolivian students. Um, And so it was U.S trained soldiers who captured Che Guevara shortly after his arrival in the country. Um, And, you know, once he was captured, the U.S. forces, like, who were kind of actually embedded there, actually wanted him at least... a lot, most of the stories you'll hear, like, wanted him to just kind of be taken into custody because they thought that killing him would turn him into a global martyr who had his face sure. on a bunch of T-shirts at music festivals for decades. <laughs> um, but these soldiers we'd trained were like, no, let's just murder him. So they murder him, and yeah, now he's you can, he's on all sorts of T-shirts. Um, Some yeah, murder. so yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I'm not a big fan of Shay, but uh, it it clearly like w- one of the things that's funny to me is that. You've got some of the guys who are some of the U.S. guys who were in the field instructing these troops are smart enough to recognize what's going to happen if Shea gets executed. But the actual soldiers in charge, these Latin American officers, had learned so well from the United States, who was doing nothing in this period but creating martyrs, that they like they can't even listen to the direct advice in the field because they've been inculcated in this U.S. style of thinking that that mm. that 
yeah, they just murder this guy. It's very funny. So, yeah, by opening up more slots in the School of the Americas to students of a different nation, the U.S. was able to kind of modulate like which countries got floods of these motivated far right um, military officers who were willing to like take power and execute camp basically act as death squads against leftists so they do that in bolivia right which is a big part of like why shit what shay's doing there doesn't work is the u.s had already flooded bolivia with these trained and uh uh, uh motivated um kind of right-wing ideologue soldiers um and we do that in every country that we start to see the left wing take off in so in 19 in the 1960s the chilean left wing starts to organize and gain political power um led by a charismatic socialist named salvador allende um, and one of one of you know for an understanding of who Allende was, he was he, he was a big backer of better educational policy. He wanted better education for like indigenous people, poor people in 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 Chile. He what wanted a monster. To, pay for this by nationalizing a lot of the different resources in Chile because like corrupt politicians prior to him had made these very much illegal deals with US companies that basically gave them all of Chile's resources for for nothing. Um, so he was like, well, let's stop that shit. Let's use the money from the resources that we have in our country to make life better for our people. And a bunch of Americans with financial interest in stealing Chile's resources are like, oh, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Um, and so in the early late 50s, early 60s, the School of America starts taking in more Chilean soldiers under the guise of we'll train them how to be more effective soldiers and we'll also teach them about how Salvador Allende and everybody like him need to be fucking murdered. Um, so, yeah, the this, again, starts under the Kennedy administration. Um, but, you know, as as the whole Kennedy thing doesn't work out so well, things actually do work out for a while for <laughs> Why, the Chilean did left. Did something happen? Yeah, Bernard Montgomery Sanders made a couple of key decisions there. That's so what, that's what as I thought. The, yeah. As the Chilean left begins to win more victories, they start kind of quietly inviting, the U.S. starts quietly inviting more and more Chilean soldiers into the School of the Americas. Um, and in fact, more Chilean soldiers trained at the School of the Americas than soldiers from any other country during the 1970s, between 1970 I'm, and 1975. Um, I have a quick question, Robert. Are they, yeah. like, I know that the job, like, if you graduate from the school, you're more likely to get a job that's higher up in the ranks, which probably means more money, but is, is there other financial incentives from going to the school that like allow these people to maintain their power like or is their power well, strictly come from their training it gets them better positions which gives them control of more and more men and higher numbers of their men are also trained at these schools and they don't get money directly from that but the fact that they're in this position means that suddenly there's this opportunity to hey if we take over Right. We have all the guns. We have the mill. We are the military. If we take over, well, then we can get all that money for ourselves and we can personally start to enjoy the benefits of this like this this lucrative American life like we can get rich. Like that, that can happen for us if we take over the country, if we stop these resources from being nationalized and going to all of the people, we can just sell them access to them to the United States and get this shit our, for ourselves. This is happening all over Latin America. That that's why all these people get fucking rich. A lot of them do like when they when they do their coups is because like they take over the country and then they get to sit down with all these corporations who had backed the overthrows of the governments in these nations and say like, right. Hey, we can keep this shit flowing to you, but like daddy needs a little cut and it's cheaper to you than giving than the entire nation getting a cut. Cause all you sure. got to do is help me and my buddies out. But yes, there that's the financial wow. in incentive. And a lot of these guys, by the way, 
the ones who are really smart wind up buying homes and property and immigrating to the United States. There's a bunch of America, like there a bunch of the school of the Americas graduates help overthrow their governments, loot their own countries, and then flee to the United States when things start to turn against them politically. That happens all the fucking time. Greed um, is wild. Up to oh the present God. day. You know, we'll talk about Bolivia a little bit at the end. Um, of this of this series. So when Salvador Allende finally gets elected president of Chile, you know, the whole 60s, we're pumping soldiers who were, you know, trained to be these right wing ideologues into Chile and the Chilean left is rising politically. And Allende finally gets elected president in 1970. Um, and, you know, now he's going to be in a position to actually nationalize all these resources, help the Chilean people and kind of fuck over some big U.S. corporations that have financial interest in Chile. So as soon as this happens, as soon as Allende gets elected, and in fact, a little bit before he actually gets elected, talk in the White House turns to cooing him out of power. Um, Henry Kissinger says, I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist because of the irresponsibility of its people. Oh, because it's the 70s, so Nixon. Yeah. Yeah, Nixon's in charge now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But again, same basic idea under Nixon and JFK. And in fact, you look at that quote from Henry Kissinger, we don't, why would we stand by and let a country go communist because its people are irresponsible? That's the same attitude that Woodrow Wilson professed, you know, mm -hmm. 60 years ago, earlier. You're too ignorant to run your own country. Which yeah, is just yeah. the most batshit thing I've ever, yeah. I'll never understand this. Yeah. And of course, Nixon expresses, and again, we have this on tape. That's why we know, like, Kissinger said mm -hmm. that shit. Um, and Nixon is terrified that the nation might become another Cuba. Which, like, I don't want to whitewash the bad things Castro did, but Cuba also has some of the best disaster response in the world and more doctors than basically any other country. Like, it's not exactly the nightmare story of communism, but whatever. Um, you know, every nation, because it's a nation, has bad shit to it, too. But, like, I, I, it's just so crazy to me. People looking at Cuba as this, like, nightmare when it's like, well, you want to look at the grand scheme of every nation on the planet. They're, like, not in the worst part of the places in the world to be. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Um, so under Nixon, the U.S. backs Allende's far-right opposition for several years, and it engages in a program of vicious economic sabotage aimed at collapsing the Chilean economy, uh, and thus, you know, all support in the new president. So the CIA starts reaching out to officers in the military who were solid right-wing anti-communists, uh, and one of the men that they reach out to is a general named Augusto Pinochet, um, who, I'm mm. I guess that name is at least familiar to a lot of people. Uh, now, there's some debate as to whether or not Pinochet was the main architect of the coup that followed, which he claimed, um, or if he was just brought in at the last minute, as a bunch of other members of the coup claimed. And again, Pinochet's a liar, so I'm not going to say what the actual truth <laughs> is here. But he gets involved at a certain point, and he was not a graduate of the School of the Americas. But basically, 100% of the other officers who were involved in the plot against Allende, including the guys who started the plot, were all graduates of the School of the Americas. How did Pinochet like just get ahead of all of them he's real smart he's okay. a very 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 cunning political operator right like you just have to give it to them sometimes like he was good at what he did which was become the dictator of chile <laughs> like, <laughs> copy yeah it's kind of like how did stalin wind up in power because if you look at the way things were kind of at the start of the bolshevik revolution he, you, he probably isn't the guy you would have guessed would wind up with all of the power but he does and it's a very complicated story as to how um but it boils down to he's a real fucking smart dude and hot. Copy. And hot. Well, that is overblown, but he was very intelligent. Um, he had a lot of acne scars that get that get don't, photoshopped don't out of. Don't skin shame him. I am going to skin shave Fine. the dictator of the Soviet <laughs> Union. 
Yeah. I'm not. Oh my God. I'm not. That's not the thing to, and I actually, they were like smallpox scars. Um, so yeah, the, so all of these, basically all of the Chilean officers who start this plot to overthrow Allende and organize the military against them are graduates of the School of the Americas. And these men saw Allende who sought to improve public education and ensure Chile's resources were shared for the benefit of its people as a threat. Allende meant a future without shiny new American malls filled with shiny new luxury goods that they could buy with the bribes they received from the Western resource extraction companies that wanted Chile's wealth. Um, So in September of 1973, a large group of Chilean officers, again, basically all of whom were graduates of the SOA, launch a coup. They surround the presidential palace and President Allende is found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound shortly thereafter. There's debate over whether or not he shot himself, whether or not an aide shot him, if the military killed him. We don't really need to get into that. He's certainly murdered by this coup. Like whether or not he pulled the trigger, he dies because there's a coup against him. Um, yeah. So General Pinochet winds up in power and he would hold, he would stay in power until 1990. During his reign, Chilean soldiers continued to train at the School of the Americas. They learned fun new counterinsurgency tactics to suppress the left, like throwing suspected leftist militants out of helicopters. They learned how to torture and they practiced their new skills on tens of thousands of their fellow Chileans. Between 1,200 and 3,200 people were executed by Pinochet. More than 80,000 were interned and again, tens of thousands were tortured. Now, Pinochet himself didn't, you know, attend the School of the Americas, but the head of his secret police, Manuel Contreras, did graduate from the SOA. Another graduate of the SOA was the deputy director of Pinochet's secret police. And so, uh, also another graduate of the SOA was the head of the Via Grimaldi, which was Pinochet's notorious torture castle. He had a castle where he tortured people. Uh, and the Via Grimaldi was, was particularly famous for its signature punishment, which was rape. Like that was like one of the things that's notorious <sighs> about this is like male or female, you get sent here. One of the things that happens is you're going to get the, you're going to get really, really raped, um, like either by individuals or by individuals like using objects. And it's kind of it's to humiliate the men. I guess it's to humiliate the women, too. But like it, this is like ra- a lot. Pretty much every torture prison that exists. Rape is a part of it. But like, I was going to say it's just there Guantanamo. But this also- it's particularly a thing here. That is so the, the it, I, it's wild to me that in the desire for not just things, not just the ability to buy, not just the American dream, but like prosperity and future and like growth and development, we always like we as human beings always seem to take a step back to the dark ages, like build a castle with giant walls and like assault people as a yeah. form of, of development so that we can all be better. Like, where's the logic? Well, you I, know, I think they had this building and it was a good place for a prison. And they, uh, you know, for whatever reason, one of the things you find studying the School of the Americas is that when people are trained in how to punish leftists by the U.S. military, they wind up raping their prisoners all the fucking time. Um, it's a huge <sighs> thing for SOA graduates, big rapists, graduates of the SOA. Huge fans of of rape as a method of violent political control. Are we just seeing the same thing? And oh my god, there's a country right now where there's a coup happening, and they just forced a guy to like assault himself with a bottle. Oh yeah, yeah. I forget where that was. That Belarus? No, I think so. Yeah, that wouldn't have anything to do with the U.S. really, because Belarus, not um. Not a lot of ties with the Belarusian Belarusian soldiers aren't being trained by the U.S. military. Like that's one you can't. Uh, that's that's kind of more 
rushes into things, uh, but also like just kind of Beller. But how know. different are we from like, I feel like so much of our tactics are just very yes. similar and same results. It, this yeah. this is the thing. And it, again, it's the thing when you start talking about like, um, you know, people will talk about will praise the things that like, let's go back to Cuba, the things that Cuba does right. And someone will bring up like all of the horrible human rights things that are real things. The Cuban government's done some fucked up shit, particularly like a lot of fucked up shit, like LGBT people. You look what was happening during the AIDS crisis. A lot of reasons to criticize the Cuban government. But you try to find a single thing the Cubans did that the United States isn't also doing in this period mm-hmm. to members of multiple foreign nations and to its own nation. Um, like we've got we've got no leg to stand on when it comes to criticizing these people just because you personally didn't get brought taken into a rape castle and molested to death. Mm-hmm. Um, like we trained people in how to do that. And then we were like, it's good that they're doing this. Let's be their friends while they do it, because this is <sighs> what we want them to do, because it gets us copper. Like, f- fuck everybody. Um, <sighs> so, uh, yeah, the Via Grimaldi fucked up place. And I'm going to quote from a report in Amnesty International on it. Quote, they took us to an interrogation room where they had a metal bunk bed. There was another detainee on the top and my partner was tied to the side. They were interrogating all three of us at the same time, taking turns to electrocute us one after the other. The interrogation session lasted through the night into the next morning. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now, in Via Grimaldi, uh, detainees would be electrocuted, waterboarded. Uh, they had their heads forced into buckets of urine and excrement. They were suffocated with bags. They were hanged by their feet or their, their, feet or their hands and beaten. Uh, women obviously were raped. Uh, and for some detainees, the punishment was death. Um, the dark, cramped cells they were held in was just like, yeah, that was that was that was the that was the world you lived in. Um, one detainee later recalled, after an interrogation, you would be thrown back in your cell. They would shut the door, and then the first thing you would experience is someone coming closer. They would hold you, help you lie <gasps> down, take the blindfold off, and put some water to your lips. The electric shocks would make you stream with sweat, and you'd get extremely dehydrated. So very thirsty. And about 4,500 people went to this place over the course of the time Pinochet was in charge. A lot of them never made it out. We'll never know how many died there. Huge numbers of people are still missing. Um, Horrible. Yeah. General Carlos Prats was one of the few members of the Chilean military command who remained loyal to President Allende. Uh, For this, he and his wife were murdered by a car bomb in 1974 in Buenos Aires. Before his death, he mused on exactly how his former comrades in the Chilean military had, in his kind of words, confused Chilean national interest with the interest of the United States, betraying their own people. Because again, because of these ideas they buy into about like American, the American way of, like this American dream they want for themselves, they send thousands of their own people off to die. So this this general, who is one of like the loyal to the people of Chile generals, is kind of before his own murder, musing on how this happened. Uh, and I, this quote from him, I think, is really, really telling. As far as the internal enemy is concerned, the opinion acquired by those who have attended courses at the School of the Americas and others organized by the Pentagon has been increasingly prevalent. Many of these soldiers have responded to the stereotypes and thoughts which were inculcated into them during these courses and, believing they were liberating the country from the internal enemy, have committed a crime which can only be explained by their ingenuousness, their ignorance, and their political short-sightedness. I used to tell the president that we should send our officers to know what it was like in the countries of Europe, Africa, and Asia so as not to copy or imitate their armed forces, but so that they could widen their horizons and understand that the world does not begin to end in the schools of the Pentagon. 
So this is kind of his blame. You know, th- this is him specifically saying that like the 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 mindset, it's not the specific training at the at the School of the Americas that has as much an impact on why these men do the things they do as the mindset the the inculcated in them. It turns them into it turns them into the same kind of right wing uh uh extractionary monsters that are currently govern- governing our own country and that have for a while determined U.S. public policy. It turns them into little fucking Nixons, right? That's that's what's happening here. Now, another famed School of the Americas graduate was Hugo Banzer. Uh, he graduated from the SOA in 1956. Uh, he went home to Bolivia. He rose through the ranks, and he became a general. In 1971, he seized total power during a violent coup. He immediately closed universities and banned all political parties and activity. He jailed labor leaders, arrested 3,000 political opponents, and had more than 200 of them executed. Under Banzer's rule, the basement of the Ministry of the Interior was turned into a torture chamber, where more than 2,000 prisoners were held. For his good work, Banzer earned a spot on the Wall of Fame back at the School of the Americas. Now, shit. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> it's it's one thing to go down there, yeah. like make a school, brainwash a bunch of people, spread them across the yep. entire continent, and allow them to take over. It is entirely another to be like, this is a prime example of the students we're trying to create. Yeah, Thank this you. is this what? guy did it. This is what we want you to do. I mean, it, you good couldn't job. be more direct. You couldn't be more wow. direct. So what the fuck. Now, remember how I kind of started talking about the the ground school and like what it was trying to do to the minds of soldiers by talking about these Argentine soldiers who were like the first wave into that school? Well, one of the men in that first wave was a young officer named Leopoldo Galtieri, uh, and he went on to, again, become a general because it's great for your career to go to the School of the Americas. Uh, And eventually he helped carry out a military coup that took power in Argentina in the late 1970s. He became the dictator of Argentina. uh, And as the dictator, School of the Americas graduate Galtieri presided over more than 30,000 executions. <laughs> oh. We have to leave other countries alone. We, we, we have to stop doing countries. this shit, right? Stop messing with us, other countries. We, I mean, honestly, right now, most of you have. Uh, but keep that up. Like, keep this coronavirus energy later. Like, protect your citizens. That's nuts. It's fuck. A lot of stuff's fucked. There's a lot I could say about this. One of the things that's so fucked is that, like, we fuck all these countries over and help them establish dictatorships and because of how badly it goes you get this attitude that the u.s should never do anything else ever so that when the people of these countries rise up against their dictators uh there's basically no nobody there's no you can't you can't make a political argument for helping them um because of how bad it works every time we like it's this and and it just it compounds the heart it's just all fucked everything's fucked um i wish a lot of different indiv- there's a lot of people if I could unborn people there's a lot of people ah. I would make not have been born um and most of them are American. So uh, over the decades that it was open, the School of the Americas is known to have graduated at least 11 students who became dictators, which is a lot. That's so many dictators for one school. Is there any school competing with them for number of dictators yeah. created? No. No there's not. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> Um, it's that's so many fucking dictators that's from a single school. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anywhere has that kind of pedigree. Um, oh not even God. fucking Harvard. So, 
the school, <laughs> yeah, many of the school's deadliest graduates weren't always the ones who became world leaders, though. More than anything, School of America's men were the willing instruments of dictators, the happy killers who made the right-wing authoritarian wave that crashed over Latin America in the 70s and 80s possible. El Salvadoran General Juan Zapata was a graduate. He planned mm. the assassination of six Jesuit priests, their housekeeper, and their teenage daughter. The crime of these Jesuits was providing humanitarian aid to suffering left-wing peasants. We'll talk a lot more about Catholics and Jesuit being murdered in the next episode because they're a big part of, in Latin America, they get killed all the time by these right-wing death squads because, like, say what you will about the Catholic Church, in Latin America, a lot of Catholic and, and Jesuit leaders are like, oh, there's all these people starving to death and, like, we should help them and those people are also left-wing, so you gotta murder those priests and stuff. It's this whole thing. Um, what about Oscar Romero a bit? Yeah. Um, Jesuits are cool. Jesuits, yeah, it's like, it's, uh, I, of the things the Catholic Church has done, this is the best of them, is their attempts to reduce the horrors happening in Latin America in this period of time, probably. So, uh, Zepeda, uh, again, School of the Americas graduate, was involved in 210 summary executions, 64 tortures, and 110 illegal detentions during his career. Uh, U.S. training certainly influenced how he did what he did, but it's important to remember that a very deliberate campaign of U.S. propaganda influenced why he did what he did. Leslie Gill, the author of that book, The School of the Americas, that I keep citing, interviewed a number of graduates of the school, including a Bolivian colonel who told her about the El Salvadoran soldiers he'd met there. And this guy's really interesting. We'll hear from him in part two because he's very critical of the School of the Americas and what he learned there. But he also went like he, he has this experience. He knows all these people who go there. So he's Ooh. able to talk from direct experience about how it influences them as human beings and changes the way they think, which is part of why this book, The School of the Americas by Leslie Gill, is such a, an incredible resource that really, if you care about this, you should buy and read. It's a very very readable and, and very detailed breakdown of what happened there. Um, so I'm going to read a quote from this Bolivian colonel. He's talking again about El, the El Salvadoran soldiers he met at the School of the Americas. Those guys thought about three things. First, they wanted to train themselves well. Second, they wanted to buy pickup trucks and drive them back to El Salvador. When I finished class at the end of the day and went to the library, they would go out and look for cheap pickups to buy. And third, they had a lot of relatives. And this is during this is after 1984. So this is the period where the School of the Americas has moved to the United States. And third, they had a lot of relatives who they wanted to see in the United States, especially Washington. And it was not the first time that they'd been to the United States. They admired the United States in the same way as the Bolivians who trained at the School of the Americas. So, like, this is, um, like, like, like that, that's interesting to me. These guys, when they get trained at the School of the Americas in the U.S., like, the first thing they want to go do is buy cheap pickups and drive them back home. Again, this thing, this continuous thing from the 1940s of being an American, the thing that I've been inculcated in is this idea of, like, easy access to luxury goods that's huge for these guys. Um, and they have family members who have moved here and, like, become part of the culture. They're, they're very much in their head in a lot of ways. They're Americans, and they're frustrated by the fact that other people in Bolivia, most of their countrymen, don't want their country to be more like the United States. And the only th way they can sort of it's the same thing you're seeing now with all these right-wing militias in the United States who see folks on the left here who want things that are different from them, and the only thing they can think to do is kill them. Because at the end of the day, like that's the kind of people that they are, and they have guns. Um, and it's the same thing going on in Latin America. It happens here. It happens there first, right? It happens there first as part of an organized plan by the United States, and it happens here 
sort of by this is just the way things are going to go. You have all these people who believe the same thing, who here in the United States who believe the same things as the officers were training in Latin America about the American dream. And they also come to believe the same thing about communists and Marxists and whatnot, uh, making it impossible for them to live that dream by stopping the, the heedless extraction of resources and trying to build a more equitable society. And both groups come to the same conclusion. These soldiers in Latin America and these militia dudes in the United States, which is murder every Everyone who disagrees with me and doesn't want me to have a cool truck. There's like a level of absolutism to the American yeah. dream, which is like this idea of all or nothing, which is yeah. to me so fraught with like, I, I can't, don't want to live my life on terms of like pass mm-hmm. or fail. You know what I mean? And then the, yeah. how that extends then to us versus them and then pass that to you either live our way or die. I, I'm obsessed with this idea of like especially if when you start to look at like the items that they obsess over like not only is there like a very strict uniform code like if you've ever been in a protest with a shit ton of undercover cops you can pick them out so fast they can't break that like uniform look but then to this idea of like trucks like trucks being a symbol not just of masculinity but of like freedom at the expense of others is yeah. that the way you say that? Like this yeah. idea of like, I, it's what is it about a pickup truck that makes you feel so much more? Is it the height? Is it the fact that you can haul a lot of things? I don't mm-hmm. understand boys and their toys. I don't. I get mean, it. I I just bought. I I have a large uh, uh, off roading vehicle, and they're fun. I wouldn't, you know, uh, shoot babies to death and light a church on fire to have access to an off roading vehicle. No, but they do have a power to them. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like there's a lot, there's a lot to be said about what trucks mean within the context of the American dream and within sort of the American willingness to do violence, both to the world, like to the environment and to individuals around them. Like there's actually a lot, I think that should be ethnographically studied about how Americans view trucks. Um, but that is too much of a topic for this. We're near the end of our episode and kind of before we close out and in part two, we're going to talk a lot more about, you know, we're going to talk about the El Mazote massacre. We're going to talk about Oscar Romero. We're going to talk about horrible things that happen in Guatemala. And we're going to talk about kind of what happens in the United States when the school of the Americas moves there and how it operates when it leaves Latin America. And, and it's, it, it's, it's operated out of Columbus, Ohio after 1984. Um, so like Columboids, that's what they call people from Columbus. Uh, we're talking about your backyard next episode. Hey, bastard fans, bastardarinos, whatever we call you, just jumping in here to let you know that I made a mistake. Uh, I, I said Columbus, Ohio there. It's actually Columbus, Georgia. Um, the School of the Americas in the United States was outside of Fort Benning. I do apologize for the error. I've never actually made a mistake before in my entire life. So I, you know, we, uh, we, we regret uh, this being my first one. I want to cite a passage from an article in the School of Americas that I found in the Thomas Jefferson Law Review that just kind of runs through a horrific laundry list of the different things graduates of the SOA did. To give you an understanding of just how widespread the destruction from this school is. It's almost impossible to keep in your head. So I'm going to read that quote now. Pedro Pimentel Rios, who was an El Salvadoran soldier trained in the SOA, participated in the Dos Eres massacre, which resulted in the killing of 201 people. Soldiers systematically murdered men, women, and children, bludgeoned villagers with a sledgehammer, threw them down a a well, and raped women and girls. Haitian Colonel Frank Romain directed the Saint-Jean-Bosco massacre. As Father Jean-Bertrand Aristide was saying mass, armed men broke into the church, killing 12 parishioners and wounding at least 27. They then doused the church with gasoline and set it on fire. 
Honduran General Romero Vasquez led the 2009 military coup in Honduras that overthrew a democratically elected government. Vasquez is the third SOA graduate to overthrow governments in Honduras. Nicaragua. During the Somoza dictatorship, more than 4,000 National Guard troops graduated from the, the SOA. Many of them became Contras, responsible for the deaths of thousands of Nicaraguan peasants. Between 1947 and 1979, more soldiers from Nicaragua attended the school than from any other country. Peru Telmo Hurtado directed the massacre of 69 men, women, and children in Acomarca. After separating the women and children from the men, his unit raped them, ordered them into buildings, and then set them on fire where they burned alive. That's a tiny, it's 5% maybe of the, of the crimes committed by SOA graduates. Um, that's just one pair. I could have picked a bunch of different ones just summarizing the fucking nightmares that come out of this place. And we're going to talk about a massacre that makes all of those look tiny tomorrow, the El Mazote massacre. We'll talk about it on Thursday, I should say. Um, not cool stuff. Wow. Hard uh, to, hard, it's hard to, like, process, right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think, like, I keep wanting to say something, and I'm like, oh, but no, that's happening right now. Like, how could you hate your fellow countrymen so much that you burn them? All? No, we, we, we've been doing that. Because they're stopping you from getting a truck. <laughs> like, how dare you stop yeah. the progress of all of us? I must progress faster. Yeah. Or even just the idea of, like, I, it's hard for me to... I Okay, so I have two thoughts. One is I've been so poor I've almost been homeless before. I understand looking at a life of ease and coveting it and mm-hmm, sure. te- and being like that temptation of like what would you like and really having to face the question of like what would I do in order to have access to those things, right? Like I, it, I have like some level of sympathy for the boys that went into this school and we're inundated with opportunity. Like that's uh, opportunity is a hell of a drug. Like the, yeah. and especially when it's fed to you in such a sense of like, if you work hard, it's going to be there for you. All you have to do, it's all within you, right? Like that, that part of the American dream of like, it's already in there. You just have to tap into it hard enough is what I think drives some people right over the line. Um, because you don't want to be a thing that stops yourself. That should be the easiest hurdle to overcome. And then I'm thinking about like these men who return home and like there must be such a level of like self-hate to look at people that look like you or have shared experiences as you and then not just violently rape them, but also burn them alive, women and children. And like, it's just, yeah, I commend you on your ability to continue to find bastards after all these like people. I truly want to be like, I hate you for what you've done. I can't understand it. And I'm mystified. Um, at the level of hate and destruction we as human beings are able to cause is just, it's never ending. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. And it is one of those things like, I'm not going to pretend I don't see why part of what these people find appealing. Cause like I am, I am someone who I don't think I'm, I don't think as an adult I've ever been taken in by the American dream as a, an ideal, but I have been taken in by like, I grew up poor and, or at least poor by, I don't know, kind of white people standards, right? Like we weren't, we weren't in the streets, but my parents were worried about like being bankrupt and stuff. And like, it was, it was a really like economic anxiety is a huge part of my youth. And uh, it has kind of, it did propel me to focus on making money. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I, I that has always been a huge thing for me is being able to like live comfortably on my own without any help from anybody. And that's not a healthy part of my personality. 
Like it's it's not a good thing that I that I did. It's a thing that I did because mm. it of the the way in which I grew up and sort of an inability I had to kind of um like this constant fear that I had yeah. to sate before I could accomplish anything else. Like I had to not be scared about finances before I could do other things because of the it, it, it's not a good thing, right? It, yeah, it's yeah. it's not a it's not a good thing, but it's a I get how powerful the thing is. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about the gentleman you were describing who went to the school but didn't come out brainwashed. Yeah, like, he's a really interesting guy. Yeah. How did you, how were you like one of, I imagine, very few people who were like, no, this is insane. This you is know, crazy what's happening around us. There's some people who just kind of have that ability even within, you know, training regi- regimens that are designed to, you know, I, I have a friend who was, um, who, who was in, you know, we, we're talking about the Marines, the Marines. And like one of the things he'll say mm. about basic training is that like he kind of immediately realized like, oh, this is a game and I have to pretend to agree with and believe and react in certain ways in order to succeed at it and mm. and, and get through this part that like I, I know what they're trying to do and how they're trying to alter me and I have to pretend like it's having this effect so that I can get through this part and and do the stuff. I guess that I want to do right. Like right. some, some people just have, and it, you get the feeling from this guy that he kind of like goes to the school and he doesn't agree with a lot of what's happening and he, but he's able to see what's happening to other people there. And it's good, you know, that he went and yes. did that and brought back this experience. So we're able to understand it on a human level, right? We need witnesses. Yeah. Yes. It's, vital- it's not bad that this guy, brought that experience to us. Yes, um, yes, yes. This is exactly yeah. what uh, James Baldwin talks about is being a witness. It's a it's a legitimate role. Yeah. Some people frown upon it because you're literally like I think some people view a witness as like just taking up space and documenting the story, but by not participating and by not stopping, you can better explain how things happened and it's it's just as important as our quote unquote heroes who are are changing the world for the better. Like it's it's where would we be without understanding how we got here in the first place? Yeah, I mean, and it is one of those things, like one of the critiques, I mean, obviously, like like Leslie Gill and her book, like they didn't stop anything. You know, the School of the Americas was kind of already past its period of real influence, of major influence by the time, you know, her book came out. But it's important that it be documented, that we understand this stuff, because it if if the information is allowed to get out to the people it needs to, it can act in building our cultural immunity to some of this stuff. And we have to have we have to let it do yes. that. We have to we can't we can't not learn these lessons, which is why I think I th- and you get the feeling one of the this is really the School of the Americas is such an amazing book to me because of the depth Leslie Gill goes into the number she talks to instructors at the school in in from Whoa. different eras she talks to people who went there she talks to their victims like she she is really you can see motivated and she this is she's a person who had spent spent a lot of time living in and around and like writing about Latin America and Latin American issues she's a very very um competent um you know ethnographer I guess you'd say um but you get this feeling that it was there was this kind of she understood how important it was for the story of what this place did to people, how it succeeded in its goal and the consequences, how crucial that is to get out to people. Because, I mean, for one thing, it's happening in fucking Oregon right now. Like we're seeing yeah. School of the Americas shit starting just the earliest stages, thankfully not the mass grave stages. But the things that could lead to that if people yeah. aren't careful, like 
it's it's happening here. <laughs> so we should understand what happened over there um, that we did to these people, you know, yeah. Th- that we did in a lot of cases. And, and a lot of them did, too. Like, you know, mm-hmm. not to I don't want to like you don't want to one of the problems sometimes with criticizing like the U.S. influence on places like this is like then you 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 don't criticize the, the fact that there's a lot of you know folks who live in those countries and come from those countries who did a lot of mm-hmm. fucked up shit, too. But like we what happened over there, the violence they committed in our name was part of a plan that U.S. leaders had and executed. Mm -hmm. And that's important to know. So, Joel, we'll talk more later. Let's do it. Part two is coming. I look forward to it. You want to plug anything? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you're intrigued by any of the comments I made about black representation in America and the horror story that that is, uh, I am recapping Lovecraft Country for the AV Club right now. Uh, It is a doozy. There is a lot happening, especially if I don't know when this will be released, but if y'all have seen episode five, then you know what goes down. Um, so yeah, check that out. Otherwise, you can find me all over the internet at Joelle Monique. That's J-O-E-L-L-E-M-O-N-I-Q-U-E. Uh, yeah, come chat with me about the crazy bastards you guys talk about. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by the show. And uh, you can't find me at those same places online because I am not Joelle Monique. So that's the end of the you episode. You can follow the Robert on Twitter so at I write OK. You can follow us on Twitter at Scarab Bastards Pod. We have a T Public Store. Uh, did I do it? I don't know. I was trying to explain to them where they couldn't find me because I thought that would be <laughs> useful to people. Yeah, but the content you post is important. All right. Well, thank at you, I everybody. Okay, Twitter. Uh, don't be in a fire um bye bye i'm scott weinberger journalist and former deputy sheriff in my new podcast series cold-blooded i'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter billy halpern experience this investigation in a truly unique way untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case but almost a dozen Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed 
I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.